find in your Bibles Acts chapter 12. And if you uh, need one, there's one in the pew in front of you. If you remember last week, we did uh, verse 1 through 4, and then we did 20 through 24, I believe. And today we're going to hit the middle. So we talked about Herod last week. We're going to talk about Peter mainly this week. And I want to read the passage. I'll stop, make a couple comments. Then we'll look through our notes and we'll refer back to some specific things. So let's start Acts chapter 12, verse 5. It says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, and I'll remind you the purpose of the trial was to execute him, okay? Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Remember, there were 16 soldiers in all guarding him. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him, followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was not so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of, out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. Now, I want to remind you, this is James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who was now heading up the Jerusalem church. Tell others about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had, thorough, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. And that's where we'll stop today. So we have a narrative of an event that happened. And, you know, kind of like when last week, James dying wasn't the focal point. Peter being in prison isn't necessarily the focal point. It's the context. It's the context of what happened and what we're supposed to see here. So we're just going to work through the notes. I'm going to point things out as we go from the passage. And we'll see what we can learn today. A, a variety of topics. So number one in your notes, I want to remind you that you should always take time to notice the little words in Scripture. 
Oftentimes, we read the Bible with the goal of finishing our allotted reading for the day, or getting to a certain point, or uh, getting my time in, which is not bad. Okay, I don't want to put that down. We, we do need to set goals. We do need to set aside time. And sometimes, in order to build the habit, we need those things. But as we read, it's better to read fewer verses and get more out of them than it is to read a lot of verses but miss what's there. So in a slow, careful reading of this passage, a, a few small words stand out to me. So A in your notes from verse 5, there's the word so... And then there's the word but. Well, so is kind of like a therefore. And it's, it, it's like, as, as in reference to what we've just talked about, this, this happened. Well, what did we just talk about? Uh, James was executed. A bunch of people were arrested. That made everyone so happy that Herod, on his own, then arrested Peter. And he intended to kill him. And he says, so, Peter was in prison. Seems like kind of a letdown statement, right? We don't know how he felt. We don't know about any conversations. We don't know if he had any visitors. We don't know how many days he was there. We just know that he was arrested on the Feast of Unleavened, Festival of Unleavened Bread, and he was going to go on trial after Passover. So there's some time there, but we don't know exactly how much time. We don't know many details at all. It just says, so Peter was in prison. Like, duh, he was arrested, so he's in prison. That, that's kind of what we got there. And, and that tells us that's not the main point here. This is not the thing we're supposed to focus on. I, I think back to sermons I've heard on this passage and how many sermons I've heard that focused on Rhoda and how she missed an opportunity or didn't recognize Peter's voice and how the people didn't believe her. And that's not the point either. It's all context that we need to get the, the main idea. We'll get to the main idea. So it says, so Peter was kept in prison. Then there's the but. But is a huge word in the Bible. It's a great word in the Bible. It means things are changing. It means uh, we need to pay attention. We need to notice what's happening next. So Peter was kept in prison. Remember, he's kept there so he could go take part in a fake trial so he can be executed. So Peter's kept in prison. But the balancing factor, the thing that's going to make the difference, the thing we need to take note of, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now we'll talk about what that means in a minute, but I just want you to see the but there. If you miss the but, you miss the point. Pay attention to the small words. Don't, don't just move over them. What are they there for? They're there for a reason. The next word I want you to notice is, is in verse 6. It's sleeping. Now, we, we have enough context to realize that sleeping is not the normal response. Okay? One of Peter's best friends has recently been executed. Everybody thought it was great. The Jewish leaders thought it was great. The Jewish people thought it was great. Herod thought it was great. Matter of fact, Herod thought it was so great that he arrested Peter and intended to do the same thing to him. So Peter's in prison. I'm sure he has word that, uh, you know, after the Passover, it's going to be a trial. And he could count days. He knew it was tomorrow. The guards were probably talking to him. The guards were probably mocking him. They were probably trying to, to ruffle him. So here's Peter chained to two guards sitting in prison. Tomorrow is trial day and probably execution day. And what's he doing? He's sleeping. I thought about this, and I'm like, that's my new goal. When stuff is that bad, I want to be able to sleep. Now, he, he not only was sleeping, 
He slept so peacefully that the next word I want you to notice is in verse 7. It says, the angel struck Peter on the side. Now, now the angel made his usual entrance. He appeared in the room. A bright light shone. Probably the only Peter could have seen. Because it didn't disturb any of the soldiers. But this bright light shone. And usually when the angel shows up and the bright light shines, people awake, people get frightened, all this stuff. Peter just kept sleeping. He wasn't sleeping lightly. He was sleeping deeply. And the angel had to strike him. Now this is humorous to me. Because I just picture the angel. You know, we all have our grand entrance plan sometimes. The angel pops in, the bright light shines. Hmm. Wake up. I don't know if he kicked him, poked him with a stick, slapped him in the ribs. But he had to wake him up. And, and I find that humorous, but it also reflects on how deeply Peter was sleeping. In, in the probably the most stressful time of his life so far, bar maybe the night Jesus died, Peter's in prison about to be, be, be killed. And, and, and what was he thinking? What, what, what allowed him to sleep? Well, a lot of things. We'll get to some of that. So what's the application here? We spent time talking about some of these small words, gaining some, some insight. What's the application? I'm going to give you application all the way through today. Application A, when a but is required, God's got it covered. When a but is required. Okay, Peter needed a but. Peter's in prison, he's going to die, but God had other plans. Okay? Peter was sleeping, but God was going to rescue him. When we need a but in our life, I don't know what to do next, but God does. I don't know how to provide this need, but God does. I, I don't know uh, how to think, but God does. The Holy Spirit will speak to me. When I'm in a situation and it seems hopeless, it seems like there's no answer, it seems like there's no future, the, the God of the but has an answer. There's a but, comma, but I will provide, but I will walk with you, but I will make something good come from this. When a but is required, when a change needs to take place, when we need to pay attention, God's there going, I'm the one to listen to. I've got this. B, we too can sleep when the enemy is attacking. I told you this is my new goal. I mean, I sleep pretty well, so I feel... I feel good about this, but I want my, the new goal I have is I want to always be able to sleep in, in stress because I know God has my back and because I know that there's a peace that passes understanding that will let me sleep and because I know there's a sovereign God who has already worked out all the details and will not be surprised and because I know that if the worst thing that can happen happens, I will simply be in the presence of God, which is not that bad. I would even say it's the best. So I, I don't want to be able to sleep. I just want that to be the norm. My prayer for others will be that they can sleep. I, I'm looking forward to, and this is going to sound really weird, but I, I hope on Friday when Andrew has surgery that I sleep. That I have a good night's sleep and I'm not stressed out and worried because it's in the hands of God. See, the last application from this is is uh, kind of in connection with that. My new goal in prayer is for the necessity of a strike. I want to be so at peace with God that when the angel shows up, he has to strike me. He has to get my attention. And, and that just kind of, B and C probably should have been together, but 
When, when, the, when we need a butt, God's got one. And, and in the situation, we can sleep. I Just amazing. I never really saw that before. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. So let's move on to the next phrase I want to focus on in verse 5. Back to verse 5, actually, the, the last phrase. But the church was earnestly praying for him. The church was earnestly praying. I want you to see the picture here. I think this is one of the big pictures we're supposed to get. The difference in the situation, one of the differences, one of the factors we're supposed to take note of is that the church was praying earnestly. And I want to tell you that I have learned from experience, and I believe the Bible teaches it, that there is power in the prayers of the church. And I put the church in parentheses because I mean the church. There is power in the prayer of the local church. That's why we have corporate prayer. There's power in the prayer of the greater church. I, I put these three things down here as an example. Uh, many of you know this, our, our daughter's story. She, at 15 years old, had a, a little tumor the size of a eraser, but was located in the middle of her brain on the pituitary gland. That was sort of freaky. Okay, when that ended, she developed an eating disorder. They were very much connected, the two things, and she had to go into treatment. And I was thinking about how to describe the, the, the desperation in the situation. And, and this is what kept coming to mind, so I don't know if this will make sense to you or not. But it's as if we sat down at a table with death to discuss the future. That's, wow, that's how it was. But the peace that passes understanding kicked death out of the conversation and said, I'm here for you no matter what happens. And when we faced that situation, I want you to know we called every living and breathing Christian we knew and said, pray for us. Pray for our daughter. Every church we'd ever served at, every Christian we have an address for, every family member that was available, pray. And we had people praying all over the country. And I believe that made a difference. It made a difference in a lot of ways and a lot of things. And I don't know what would have happened if they weren't praying, but I do not discount the fact that they were praying. Andrew now has cancer. We took a similar approach. Our, our old church in Winlock is praying. Our friend's church in Winlock is praying. Family members are praying. Their churches are praying. Andrew's church is praying. Andrew's old church is praying. Uh, you know... We, we appreciate those prayers. We went to the annual enrichment conference, and the pastors there prayed for us, prayed for Andrew. There's power in the prayers of the church. When we get together and pray, there's power there. I, I believe in it, and I count on it. That's why we stop for this little short prayer every Sunday. Because these little short prayers prayed together make a difference. And, and I want to emphasize that. I don't want you to miss that. That may be the very thing you need to leave home with today. They use the word earnestly. Earnestly, a couple definitions. Uh, number one, resulting from or showing sincere and intense conviction. Like, I'm, I'm going to God seriously. I'm going to God and I'm like, I have, I have something very important to discuss with you. I'm going to tell you what I want, and then I'm going to give you permission to do what you want. That's the kind of prayer we're talking about. A second definition, uh, to a greater extent or more intensely than before. I'm going to pray more intensely about this, earnestly. Okay? C, under the church prayed earnestly, many people had gathered and were praying. 
This was in a house. This wasn't the whole church. This was a small group. A small group had gathered. They were representing the church. Beings that they had no idea when Peter uh, was going to be released or executed, but they knew it was coming quickly. The earnestness of the situation brought them together, and they prayed more diligently. Okay, what's the application from this? Number one, or A in your notes, never hesitate to call on the church to pray. Never hesitate. Don't say, well, I need to wait till it's a bigger deal. Or, I need to wait till after I see the doctor. Or, I'm embarrassed about the situation, I'll just keep it between me and God. Don't, don't do that. Don't hesitate to call on the church. The church can pray... The church, there may be people in the church that know exactly how to pray when you don't know how to pray. Because they have previously gone through a situation. There are people in the church who will pray for you daily and sometimes hourly because that's their gift. And others may not have that gift, but others will join as well. Never hesitate. B, when asked, apply earnestness appropriately. Wasn't it nice of me not to make you write the word earnestness in the notes? But we apply earnestness appropriately. So when someone says, hey, I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to get this thing checked out. Don't know what it is. Trying not to worry. Well, we pray at a level appropriate with the request. That probably doesn't require an all-night prayer meeting. I mean, honestly. We take it before God. He hears our prayers. He brings it to our heart again. Sometime later, we pray again. We take it as, as it comes, and we pray for that kind of thing. But the, hey, um, they found something, there's going to be a biopsy, or they did the biopsy, there's going to be surgery, or there's going to be some treatment. Now the earnestness increases because the need has increased, right? We increase the prayer based on what's happening. So we pray appropriately. I, I don't want to put the pressure on you that a, a you know, a smaller request doesn't, doesn't need the full earnestness, but we need to recognize that the greater requests do. So-and-so is, is dying and they're not saved. That's a very earnest request. Okay? So-and-so is dying. They are saved. Less earnest. A different request. We're praying for the saved person that they can pass well. Whether that means quietly, having get to see their family, uh, being able to share a testimony, all those things. The person who's not saved, we pray for their salvation. That God will get a hold of their heart. That they'll hear the gospel and respond to it. Different prayers requiring different levels of earnestness. There's an application for you. See, always get to your small get your small groups involved in your needs. Um, Monday morning men's group, we pray together. Wednesday night group, we pray together. Ladies, they pray together Wednesday morning and Wednesday night. Small groups that you're a part of, pray together. You know who will pray best for you? The people that know you the best. You know who knows you best? The people you small group with. The people you communicate with more often. The people you spend more time with. Maybe you have a small group that just shares prayer requests. You have an agreement that, hey, we're going to share requests with each other. We're going to pray for one another. And we're going to check in later. That's great. Whatever your small group is, however it consists, always take your needs to, the, to your group. So don't hesitate to call on the church. When called upon, apply an appropriate amount of earnestness, and then always involve your small group. That's the, the power of a praying church. 
And the church prayed earnestly. Number three in your notes on the other side, I want to talk about John Mark. We've talked about John Mark before because this is a guy that wrote the book of Mark. And we studied the book of Mark. And maybe you were here, maybe you weren't. But I want to review some things about John Mark. They're in your notes. Okay, and it just says John Mark. And by the way, I want to, I want to read this again, verse 12. I've got to turn my page the right direction. It says, uh, when, they had, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. This is John who lives with his mom. That's how he's introduced. This is John. We call him Mark. He lives with his mom. That's where Peter went. That's John Mark. So nothing we're really supposed to gain from that now except that we have the mention of his name. I want to take it farther. In your notes, John Mark is the future disappointment to Paul on his first missionary journey. If you read Acts 15, it's noted there. You read about uh, them getting ready for their second missionary journey. And Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark. Paul says, no way, Jose. He ain't going. He abandoned us the first time. He's not dependable. I don't want him at all. He's not going. And at this point in time, I don't remember which journey it was exactly, but at this point in time, uh, Paul and Barnabas split up. And Barnabas went on a journey with Mark, and Paul teamed up with Silas. Like he was so not going to take John Mark that his plans changed and his partner changed. That's how much of a disappointment John Mark was to Paul at the time. But B, John Mark was a future asset and close friend of Paul. By the time we get to 2 Timothy, Paul says, hey, send Mark. I need him. He can be of service to me. The relationship had been restored. Paul missed him and wanted him. He says, send, send Mark to me. So he was a disappointment, then he was an asset, and then C, he was a future partner in ministry with Peter. He ministered with Peter and became the author of the Gospel of Mark. It's important to put those together because the Gospel of Mark is Peter's Gospel. Mark wrote down Peter's account of Jesus' life. So that's who John Mark is. He's a kid living with his mom here. In a little while, he's a big disappointment because he quit. Whether he got homesick or discouraged or tired, whatever, he quit, went home. Later, he's a, an asset and a friend of Paul. Then he's a ministry partner of Peter, and he wrote the Gospel of Mark. What's the application? A, future you does not have to look like past you. Good news, huh? Future you does not have to look like past you. Whoever you were before you got saved, or whoever you were before you matured in Christ, or whoever you were before you learned the last lesson, it does not dictate who you will be. What you learn will dictate who you will be. How much you depend on Christ will, will dictate who you will be. You will be who God raises you up to be. And, and so often we are tempted to look at who someone was or what someone did and, and say, no, they're not worthy, they're not ready, they're not capable. No, you can't. When we should be looking at who they are and who they've become and who God wants them to be and say, yeah, let's do that. Your future you does not have to look like your past you. That's really good news and it should be an encouragement. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I believe this is a statement of fact that God will grow you in Christ. We can go willingly 
or we can be drug along through the process. Willingly sounds a lot better to me, right? And I think John Mark could have gone home and pouted, and then when Paul didn't want him, could have gone, well, I'm done for a while. I'm just whatever. I can't do anything. Nobody likes me. I'm just stuck here. But he didn't. He continued to grow. I hope he did it on his own accord, but God grew him nevertheless. We will grow. We will progress. We will become who God wants us to be. But it says, until the day of Christ Jesus, that's either the rapture or your death. The day of Christ Jesus, in this sense, is the day you meet God. And you will continue to grow until the day you meet God. And on the day you meet God, you will be complete in your growth. The end will just be there because you're in the presence of God. The future you does not have to look like the past you. It's not dependent on that. There's your application. Number four, the phrase in verse 24, we ended last week with this. We're going to end this week with this. It says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And I want to say it like this. So A through D are all one statement, really. Okay? The word of God continued to spread and flourish, not despite of James' death, but because of James' death. Not despite of Peter's arrest and escape, but because of Peter's arrest and escape. Not despite Herod's persecution, but because of Herod's persecution. And not despite Herod's strange death, but because of Herod's strange death. All of these things work together to accomplish God's plan. These were not things God had to work around. He did not have to create mechanisms to, to resolve these situations so he could continue to work. This didn't slow him down by a day. This was all part of God's plan. He either allowed it or caused it because he was going to use it. Okay, It's not that God worked anyway, but it's that God worked in and through, according to his will, according to his sovereignty, to accomplish the things he would accomplish. And, and these set of circumstances was another, created another wave of people leaving Jerusalem and going out to serve. I believe it also pushed Peter out as James was now in charge and Peter's on the chopping block. And I think he did a little Samaritan or, or Gentile tour until the heat kept, you know, wore off and he could come back into town. God accomplished a lot of things, but it says the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Telling us God's in charge, he's doing what he's doing. What's the application? Hey, nothing is bad news in the hand of God. It might feel like bad news to us. You may even be able to argue that it is actually bad news to us, but it is not bad news to God. Bad news is unexpected news. Bad news is news that you don't know the answer to. Bad news is news that you don't know if you can handle. God expects it, he can handle it, and he knows the future. It's not bad news to him. Nothing is bad news to God. And that, my friend, is really good news to us. Nothing is bad news to God. He is not caught off guard. He is not surprised. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says, And we know that in all things God works. In all things God works. Here's our favorite part for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's the second part that you need to notice. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Firstborn here does not mean the first one that was born. It means the preeminent. It means the most important. We don't use the word like that. But Jesus was the firstborn of God. But he wasn't born of God. He is God. He always was God. He always will be God. 
Okay? He's not the firstborn like that. David was the firstborn, but he was the last child of his parents. His firstborn means the most important, the preeminent, the chosen, if you will. So God works for the good of those who love him in all things so that Jesus may be seen as the most important. Jesus may be lifted up as the preeminent. That Jesus may be put on display. So God works in our life so Jesus can be seen by others. Doesn't that totally fit everything we ever talk about? Isn't it totally fit with Scripture? Here's application B. We need to stop thinking that God will honor us for our love and devotion by giving us an easy life, blessings beyond compare, and by removing trials and tribulations. we got to let that go. That's a lie from Satan. That is the, the root of the prosperity gospel. That is the flourishing of the prosperity gospel. And we can easily spot it in the big picture, but it creeps in even to our own thought processes. Because there are blessings, and we do like to focus on them, and we should focus on them. We should look to see where God is working. We should look for answers to prayer. But we need to stop thinking that life is going to be peaches and cream because we're Christians. Look around, folks. It's not. But how much better is life going through the trial with Christ? That's our great reward. It's not the removal. It's God going through it with us. And so, see, the opposite. We need to start realizing that God is honoring us when he deems us worthy to go through a trial or tribulation. When, when we go through something, as a believer, God's saying, hey, I'm going to walk through this with you, and you're going to do well, and others are going to watch, and I'm going to be glorified. You're going through this trial so that I can be glorified. You get to be my servant. You get to be my tool for the purpose of honoring God and accomplishing His will through us. I need to start recognizing that, that there's a plus side to my trials, my tribulations, my suffering, my persecution. There's a plus side. God has deemed me worthy. God has deemed me worthy to represent Him in this trial. He plans to grow me through this trial to represent Him more in some other place. There is a, a greater future for me in the kingdom of God because I'm going through this. I'm getting a promotion. I, I'm being used. It's an honor. God is saying, I choose you to do this and to be my witness. So we need to let go of the idea that everything's going to be peachy keen. And there's no reason to be upset about anything because it's all great. We need to realize that Jesus said, you live in a world full of trouble, you should expect some. He said, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He said, they hate me, they're going to hate you. Uh, so we shouldn't expect it all to be great. But Peter considered it an honor to be martyred for Christ. So did the other apostles. So when God chooses you to suffer on his behalf, to go through a trial, a tribulation, or even a persecution, when God chooses you, do you know that puts you in the company of the apostles? It also puts you in the company of Jesus. Because God chose Jesus to suffer on the cross and die for the sins of, of many. It puts us right there in the company of Jesus and the apostles. We're hanging out with the big dogs. Right? That's an encouragement. We need to have that focus. Because otherwise it's going to ruin us. Right? So, this, this narrative, this story that's here, 
so many things we can look at, so many applications we can make. I don't have time to review them again, but you can look at them in your notes. I'm just going to pray that, that God really just solidifies one of these things or two of these things in our heart, and we can take them home with us and put them to practice. Let's pray. Father, it's exactly what I pray for. Holy Spirit, work on our hearts and minds and make one or two of these things so clearly evident in our lives that we um, respond, that we let you be God. We trust you. We praise you because of everything. That the songs we sing are our reality in our life. That we trust you in the good and the bad. We praise you in the good and the bad. And we believe that you have a greater purpose in mind and we're okay to let you be in charge. Father, help us to not let our past define our future. And help us not to miss the small things in Scripture that, that teach us such big lessons. Be with us through the day. I pray that you'd fill us up for second service and let this message again speak to our hearts. In your son's name, amen.